Good evening, uh, everyone. I'd like to welcome you to uh, this LSE Cities Lecture on African Urbanism by Edgar Peterson. My name is Philip Rode. I'm the Executive Director of LSE Cities, a relatively new research centre at the London School of Economics, which I'm running together with Fran Tonketh and Ricky Burdett. Before I'll introduce uh, Edgar, let me allow to briefly make some comments about the subject uh, and some um, issues, of course, on, on the structure of tonight. First, and I'll keep that really brief, uh, knowing that the more complex issues will be covered by Edgar, but uh, by focusing on urban Africa tonight, we are focusing on a continent which is the least urbanized in the world, but one of the most rapidly urbanizing. Uh, just to give you some flavors of what that means, uh, in 1950 there were only two cities in Africa that had a population above a million. Today that number is 50 and it's predicted to be 70 within the next 15 years. The continent is clearly rapidly urbanizing and most of it is informal and I'm sure we'll hear a lot about it. We often tend to refer to the extreme cases, and so I'll do that tonight as well with a quick reference to Lagos as one of the cities where this growth is felt uh, within the individual unit of a city. 1950, a city of rarely 300, hardly 300,000 inhabitants today, today, 10 million, and predicted to be 15 million again within the next 15 years. But growth is shifting away from the big cities. In fact, the proportion of urban population in the largest cities is reducing, and it is in the medium-sized cities, and in fact also some rural areas which are now urbanizing where urban growth happens. The second point I want to make is about LSE and uh, urban Africa. And of course, there is a lot of engagement with this school across departments and across centers, but I want to refer to one person in particular, Joe Beale, who is not present tonight, but she has really been leading a lot of the efforts of linking us as an institution with South Africa in particular, and in particular the University Edgar uh, is from Cape Town University. When it comes to us, as in LSE cities, we have held the Urban Age Johannesburg Conference in South Africa in 2006, focusing on the uh, challenges of inclusion really engaging in a discussion on the big obvious themes of justice, labor markets, housing, and transport. More recently, we hosted a public lecture by the governor of Lagos, uh, Baba Tunde Fashula, and he lectured on confronting change in a global megacity, mega which gave us sort of a tiny little insight in what it means to govern a rapidly growing metropolis. With these words, let me now introduce Edgar. Uh, Edgar is uh, the director of the African Center for Cities and a professor at the School of Architecture and Planning at the University of Cape Town. He has previously served as a special advisor to the Premier of Western Cape Provincial Government and directed a number of urban policy think tanks and um, sort of various areas in government. His most recent book is City Futures. Uh, confronting the crisis of urban development, and he also edited or co-edited the following works, Countercurrents, Experiments in Sustainability in the Cape Town Region, The African City's Reader, and Voices of Transition, The Politics, Poetics, Practices, and the Development in South Africa. Edgar's research stems from the border zone between geography, planning, and cultural studies with a strong orientation towards political philosophy. As a result, 
His research is wide-ranging, covering themes such as African urbanism, the theme of tonight's lecture, cultural planning, re regional development, governance, infrastructure transition, and macro development issues. He regularly provides services, advisory services to development agencies such as the United Nations uh, Habitat, uh, the African Development Bank, OECD, and uh, the United Nations Environment Program. On the latter front, it's in fact where we have been working together for the last uh, 18 months now on a big project by UNEP on the green economy where we have been producing the chapter on green cities. Most importantly, Edgar holds a PhD from this institution, from the LSE, and an MA in Development Studies from the Institute of Social Science in Den Haag, and a BA from University of Western Cape. Tonight will be structured by a 45 to 50 minute presentation by Edgar, and then we'll have a Q&A where we'll take um, sort of questions in groups, uh, and we should be closing the session by uh, around uh, 8 o'clock. So please welcome me, and uh, please join me in welcoming Edgar uh, for his lecture. Thank you, Philip. Thank you very much. Um, generous introduction and warm welcome. Um, yeah, it's obviously really strange to be back after I did my PhD here. Um, it's bittersweet. It can only be that if you've done your PhD at a place. Um, all of the trauma intermingled with the familiarity. Um, but it's wonderful to, uh, to be here. Um, I wanted to do a few different things tonight. So instead of just focusing, if you will, on my research and work that I've been doing um, with a good friend and colleague, Abdul Malik Simon, on this particular topic of African urbanism over the last few years. Um, I, I actually want to have a bit of a conversation. I'm going to talk about, in the first instance, um, uh, the point that was flagged by Philip in terms of this dramatic growth of cities that is happening in Africa uh, across the continent. But I, less about the trends, but more about a very interesting discursive shift that is happening in how this is being perceived by global capital. There's two very interesting reports by Monitor Consulting and the McKinsey report that in a way is suggesting that this is now not being read as a massive catastrophe, but rather a kind of opportunity. And I want to reflect a bit about that. I think it's, a, it's an interesting uh, uh, occasion. The second thing is there's lots of friends and colleagues and uh, collaborators and so forth in the city. Uh, Jenny Robinson um, is here, and I'm very happy. Matthew Barak is sitting at the bottom here. Um, and as uh, some of you may know, I've been trying to establish and work with colleagues in Cape Town to set up a new research center. And I can tell you something that is trying to focus on cities in the global south with a groundedness on the continent um, is bloody hard work and it's complicated and we've got many unresolved questions and tensions and I want to reflect a little bit on that in relation to this broader theme how do you manage and navigate this, this tension between the imperative of practice of having to intervene in the city to make things better and at the same time being conscious that so much of the knowledge that exists about African cities is so reductionist and instrumentalized that it often adds to the problem and so what does that mean for setting up an interdisciplinary knowledge project about urban life 
in Africa. And I want to share some of our dilemmas and reflections on that and really use those two things as a way of then just giving you some sense of how we're framing a broader conversation and what by definition and by necessity has to be a really haphazard, careful, kind of uh, crab-like set of maneuvers to open up different ways of trying to get to this idea of, of urbanism within the context of African cities against a backdrop where these cities have always been framed and named in very instrumental terms. And that will be the last part, and I'll, I'll read from, from a recent uh, piece on that. So what do I do to move things about? Okay, that doesn't work. Um, press the button. That works. Okay. So I've made that first point, and I've, I've said all of these things. And really, the sort of this journey be began actually uh, uh, in 1992. Um, I worked for an NGO at the time, and we were working, uh, doing action research with social movements on the, in Cape Town. And a really weird guy stumbled into my life, Abdul Malik Zimo. Uh, he had a Fulbright at the university where I, I did my undergrad. And we then worked together in this NGO. And then he took me by the scruff of the neck in 1992, and we spent six weeks on the road in West Africa. Went, we were meant to go to Kinshasa, but it was pretty wild at the time already and couldn't manage. So we spent the time in Lagos, in Abidjan, and in Dakar. And for somebody who grew up in the kind of liberation movement and struggles in South Africa, who have never left the country at that point. Um, I could only get a passport in 1991. Um, this was a mind blow of very, very serious proportions. And um, when I came back, we wrote a piece that was published in 93, referenced there, where we tried to really explode the way civil society had been theorized in South Africa up to that point using a very different set of registers and logics within the public life or civil life of African cities. Then um, Jenny wrote, uh, who's here from um, uh, um, UCL, right? Is that right? Jenny's from UCL, was at Open University for a while, a very important piece in 2002, which has really been a, a critical intervention from sort of post-colonial urbanism uh, in the broader field. And on the back of this, um, uh, uh, I persuaded Jenny that we should try and do something together in 2003, and we had a wonderful workshop at Open University with the geography department there, and published a special issue that Jenny edited in 2006 in Urban Studies that grappled with some of this stuff. And, and I had a piece in there which sort of allowed me to kind of circle back to some of these issues. And then it's only more recently that um, through the African Center for Cities, after I did my tour of duty in government, um, and, uh, and I emerged and was able to get back, it was not get back, but get into the university full time, um, that I started this research project, which is uh, a sort of a collaborative affair that I'll say a bit more later. So I published last year this piece, which really is a kind of initial ground clearing, and I feel like I'm gonna do ground clearing in this area for the next 10 years or so, because there are just so many dimensions when I've got to sort of try and figure out. And really in this piece, I was trying to come to terms to some extent with the intractability and, uh, if you will, the sort of overwhelming nature of violence in social life in African cities and how we can use the idea of terror as a way of thinking through um, uh, um, uh, 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 some of the theoretical considerations that has to be borne in mind. And this is a direct response, in fact, to this workshop that Jenny and I co-organized 
in 2003 because there was a literary person there, Ashraf Jamal, who was one of the rudest people in the workshop, as Jenny would remember, uh, but nothing that a beer couldn't fix in the evening. Uh, but he wrote a very, very provocative piece about violence and terror, which sort of has been haunting me since then. And, uh, and, and some of what I'll end off tonight is from this last piece that will come out. Ironically enough, and I didn't think about this before until I did the slide, uh, in the same journal where sort of my journey started um, uh, a bit too long ago now, actually. So here goes the first part. I just wanted to sort of whiz through this. So this is going to go quite quick. Unfortunately, I don't have the kind of uh, aesthetic dexterity of the LSE Cities program, so my charts and so on aren't as pretty, but they will tell the story nonetheless. Um, and uh, yeah, so sort of most of you would be totally familiar with this picture, the sort of massive global sort of growth that is happening. Of course, all of this is mainly going to be in Africa and Asia, and almost all of these people will be poor by World Bank income poverty standards. This is the latest uh, UN DESA report um, that is just confirming sort of more or less the trajectory of the trends. And um, as you can see, Africa and Asia will surpass the sort of magical 50 yeah, marked by sort of around 2025. Um, and this is, uh, again, a very familiar picture for all of you. Uh, of course, it's important to recognize the different relative weight in terms of numerical numbers we're talking about. So Africa in a different order than Asia, but still very, very significant. And if we consider some of the numbers I'll show you later on, on just the scale of the kind of deprivation that this implies, um, how are we going to cope with this growth is anybody's guess. Um, very interesting difference, of course, to Latin America. As you can see, the Latin American transition was at a very different point, um, and that is Africa and Asia compared. Um, and then a couple of slides just on the differential picture that, that Philip um, sort of referenced in his opening remarks. And what is really significant about the sort of African growth is the fact that relatively small settlements of less than half a million people is what will dominate the urban landscape. And if we think of the research, if we think of the kind of work that gets done about the urban, it tends to use the megacity as you know, the dominant imaginary, or the large city, the Kairos, Lagos, Kinshasa, and so forth of the world. And actually, we have a very, very long way to go to come to terms with what urbanity, urban development, urban politics, urban life means in these other places that doesn't have anything near a sort of a semblance of the kind of supportive infrastructures and economic linkages that a lot of these other places have. And so informality is clearly, both in terms of social reproduction and in terms of economic life, the dominant theme in these urban spaces, both large and smaller cities. And um, it's something that, of course, has been at the heart of the kind of theoretical project for a while, but I think something we are still quite clumsy in understanding and having a language for. Um, and, and I'll reflect a little bit about that later on. Um, one has to differentiate across the continent, and as you can see, we're, we're talking about very different speeds and very different dynamics. North Africa quite far in its urban transition. E uh, East Africa just emerging, still at 21%. Okay, this is sort of 2008 data. And of course, the big story is the fact that the prevalence of slum life in the African context is much more dramatic than in the other regions, but more, more in a much more sort of complicated way and certainly more pernicious is that the depth of the deprivation and deficiencies associated with slum living is much more extreme. Okay, so the definition is these four areas, the overcrowding, informal housing, lack of access to water and sanitation, insecure tenure. And if 
A settlement, if a house has more than two of these, they throw them into the severely deprived or deficient category. And as you can see, the proportion in Africa is really staggering. Okay? So this is sort of obviously one of the critical issues that one has to confront in any kind of a knowledge project on the continent. And there's very little sense that this is going to change in the foreseeable future. And one of the correlations I'd like you to think about as we look at these numbers is the fact that almost all of this growth that is going to happen, this sort of doubling and possible tripling by 2050 of, of, of urban dwellers on the continent, is really going to be more of this. Okay? So the data shows that with all of the efforts since the Millennium Development Goals in 2000 and all of the programming and so forth that have emerged from that, that still the majority of people who were bound to end up in slums are still ending up there. And only 2% are able to emerge from those conditions. Okay, so this is really profound. This is tough stuff. Um, and I think what compounds this issue is the question of the lack of formal jobs, to put it very bluntly. Okay? So a different report from Habitat suggests that 85% of all new employment opportunities around the world occur in the informal economy, and young people in slums are more likely to work in the informal sector than their non-slum peers. Despite some advantages, informal employment ends up trapping slum dwelling and other low-income young people in perpetual poverty. Now, the point uh, about this is that if you correlate this then with the demographic profile of the continent and what it will be over the same trajectory over the next 40 years, you will see that Africa has got the largest youth bulge. Okay, so you've got a labor force that is going to go through its demographic transition with no prospect of formal work. So a condition of a kind of terminal slum prospect with zero prospect of formal work. And this is really at that nexus that social identities are being produced and new ways of living in cities and making cities is being constructed on an ongoing basis. And much of what is available in a, in a kind of our inherited stock of knowledge about how to think about urban transitions and social life doesn't really allow us to think about this particular intersection within a context of an interpenetration of global economic forces as they come together in particular African cities. Now, of course, this is not the only story. Um, um, uh, there was a very significant report that was published last year, which was on the back of a dedicated research team that was established in 2005 to troll all of the available data to get a handle on just what is the scope of the infrastructural deficit in Africa, okay, both rural and urban. And from this work, um, they generated, uh, uh, this is the summary table, an estimate of what is the capital investment that is required and the operational investment to deal with the backlog in access to services and to maintain growth, future growth, future demand. Okay? And they say we need $93 billion per annum. Okay? The current investment, and if you look at how they've calculated that, comes to uh, a number of $45 billion is the current rate of investment in infrastructure. And of course, if you just aggregate that $45 billion, most of it is for large energy projects and related rail and other programs that can allow certain raw materials to get to port and get to market and so forth. Okay. So we're not talking about a, a kind of a generalized, even investment in various categories of, uh, of investment. We're talking about a highly selective geographies 
in terms of particular countries with particular resource profiles that are intersected into very specific economic geographies. And then you get to this number of 50 billion. Now, just bear in mind, to build a hydropower station, you're already talking about sort of anything in the region of 20, 25 billion. Okay? So this is, these numbers are, uh, um, uh, you know, sort of, uh, they seem very large, but actually they get charred up very quickly. Now, I want to slightly shift register, it's a kind of set up to how some of these trends are being read in a different register in recent times. This is a, the, the results of a study done by the Boston Consulting Group. And they've estimated, building on some other work that have been done in the last while, particularly by the OECD, that with the aging infrastructure in cities in the north, um, the need for much greater efficiencies to meet certain carbon reduction targets and the massive growth happening in Asia and in Africa, that we're looking at a, a capital requirement of anything between 35 to 40 trillion dollars over just the next 20 years to meet those backlogs. Okay? Now, I have no idea how to imagine that number. I mean, it means nothing to me. It is just too many zeros, but I think it is a shitload of money. Okay? Um, and what we can see from this, of course, and I don't have a pointer, um, is that um, Africa is almost irrelevant in the story, okay? uh, in, despite that 93 billion number. So we're talking about a very different order, very different magnitude, and let's keep that in mind. And this is the reason, of course. If you look at the demographic profile, and this is a, a map that tries to sort of weight populations in different parts of the world and give you a sense, you can see, of course, the sort of Nigerian bulge, and at the total African continent, is sort of uh, a little bit less than India. Um, but of course, if you correlate that with contribution to GDP, Africa is so anorexic, it's pretty much disappeared. Okay? So, um, and then within that, South Africa is really the only, only sort of uh, uh, country that is worth representing. So, so this is just to sort of remind ourselves of the relative position of Africa in this context. Then, um, the OECD is telling us that they've just done a study of the global middle class. Okay, so this is the people that, of course, businesses depend on to be profitable. Um, and Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, its share of the global middle class is, uh, um, 30, is 2%. Um, and that 2% share of total consumption by the global middle class is 1%. Okay? Um, so, so this is the numbers of the global middle class, and I'll show you later on projections on growth. Okay, but just keep this in mind. Um, so it's relative economic importance, it's size of its infrastructure need, and the consuming middle class is uh, its share of the global uh, demand. But there's something really interesting happening, and it's not just this incredibly hideous building in Dar es Salaam. Um, there is a, a sort of a real sense of hunger, a real sense of optimism. There sort of, seems to be a displacement of this, um, this, this, this discourse of Afro-pessimism, and let's call it Afro-hype, for lack of a better term. I might as well be as inelegant as that building uh, in, my, in my own jargon. And this is the guts of it, and I'll quote from this report produced by Monitor. Monitor is the global consulting firm that Michael Porter seeded of his work on the competitiveness of nations and the importance of clusters and so on and so on. This report proposes to follow 
those who have turned the page to a different genre of, Af of the African story, of hope rather than despair, of promise in place of despondency. Knowledgeable observers are asking plausibly whether at last it may be Africa's turn. Okay, it's beautiful, isn't it? <laughs> Warms the heart. Um, and this is why, okay? So this is from the, the report by McKinsey called, of course, Lions on the Move. If we've got Asian tigers, we have to have lions on the move in Africa. And the report is called The Progress and Potential of African Economies. And as you can see, the performance, so this is 1970, 1980, averages for those decades, right? And you can sort of see the, you know, it's enough to make anybody pessimistic. And then look at the roaring 2000s, okay? Um, and then what they, of course, point out is that if you look at the compound annual real GDP growth over the eight-year period between 2000 and 2008, Africa's contribution um, was, in fact, greater than Latin America and similar to the Middle East with all its work. Okay? And it's not the only story. If you look at return on investment, um, Africa outperformed everybody since 2005. Okay? So, guys, this is a real opportunity here. More importantly, Africa is the future labor force of the world. So by 2040, it will have the largest labor force in the world, and this relates to the demographic profile that I spoke to you about earlier. Okay? So they're saying, guys, you're missing a boat here. This is, you know, this is where it's happening. This is where it's cooking. And, of course, Africa's consumption has grown by 275 billion since over this period. And this is similar to the other darlings of the emerging world, Brazil and India. And, of course, they slip this in, that you compare and contrast the continent with countries. But, you know, let's park uh, that particular conceit for a while. Um, and, uh, and you can see sort of why this, of course, is sort of representing a really interesting phenomena that's going on here. And it even has a middle class that's consuming other things than just basic foods. Okay, and it's disaggregated that, of course. And this pattern of bottom-up development, and I love that, bottom-up development, you know, so <laughs> um, um, indicates that the economic future of sub-Saharan Africa is more connected to the success of its cities and the competitive clusters, this is a monitor report, so they have to say it's clusters, and the competitive clusters based there than to its nation-states. Cities today generate most of the subcontinent's wealth, with many thriving despite obvious challenges. Rapid urbanization turbocharges economic growth and diversification, enhances productivity, increases employment opportunities, and improves standard of living. Now, and OECD, they always spoil a good story. So the OECD's report that is looking at these new emerging economies and where wealth is shifting in the world is telling us a different story. They've done a projection looking forward based on trends, average economic output over, over a 50-year period. And basically what you see is that there is an increase, but relative to global output, Africa is still flatlining pretty much. And so when they talk about the shift, um, and they've got a fantastic um, uh, uh, shifting the wealth from the OECD to the non-OECD, this is the shift to Asia okay, that they're talking about. So 2000 OECD member countries constituted 60% of global GDP 
and that will shrink down to 40% by 2030. And this is why. Okay, so this is again from the Boston Consulting Group. So the story they're telling us is that over just the next 20 years, there'll be 1.3 billion new residents bringing the total population of emerging market cities to 3.9 billion. Now remember, populations are, uh, you've got an aging population problem, you've got saturated markets in OECD countries. These companies' uh, shareholders are demanding quarter-on-quarter growth. They need to find new places, right? And um, so of course, this is a, a fantastic place to go and look. And so you segment as you do if you're in the private sector. And this is an amazing segmentation. And just look at the numbers here. It's different. It's not 2030. It's 2015. So we're looking at 2005, 2010, and 2015. The, on the left, they're demonstrating populations in emerging market cities, emerging market rural areas. Look at those numbers. And then developed market cities. And you can see um, the proportions dropping. And then if you look at then share of world GDP growth, okay, Look at those numbers in just the five-year period from 62 to 67. So, and of course, what we won't talk about tonight, I mean, the other frightening story is that 4% um, in terms of that particular segment, but that, that could be for another time. And then, of course, they segment further, and the story is India and China. Okay? So the middle-class population increase in China and India are astronomical in, again, a five-year period. So you can just imagine the kind of repositioning, dramatic repositioning that is going on. And within this, there's a very particular urban imaginary at work about what this middle class wants to consume and how they want to identify as the nouveau riche and so forth and so forth and so forth. And within this particular modeling, South Africa is the only African country that feature. And as you can see, it is almost insignificant within this large narrative. And of course, they segment further. And so, so just in case people thought that this growth means a transition to a low-carbon economy and society, think again, because what they're trying to understand is how they can sell more cars, more consumer electronics, more personal care, more footwear, more food and beverages, etc., 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 etc. So you can just imagine the kind of growth that we're talking about um, and the kind of reproduction of, econo of existing economic forces and actors that we're talking about. So this brings us back to the infrastructure picture. So the infrastructure agenda, the question we have to ask is, is Simon, Marvin, uh, Mar Stephen Graham and Simon Marvin correct in splintering urbanism? That what this will produce is a kind of urban form that will simply reproduce what we've seen unfolding over the last 20, 30 years um, in terms of uh, urban form and the kind of uneven geographies that infrastructures will reproduce. And if you then look forward on this middle class, so in other words, why this is important is because these are the people that shape and structure investment, right? Because you've got to gr get growth, you've got to make sure the middle class is a cool place to live, and they, of course, now want to live in gated towers and gated suburbs and so forth, and the, they're the people that is going to drive those marks that I just showed you. So look at Africa in this particular narrative. It flatlines again, okay? So, of course, if you look at the numbers, 32,057,107, that's fairly significant growth. So you will see a very visible, dramatic transformation of the urban fabric and public life and so forth. But proportionately relative to, it remains pretty much insignificant in the global story. And if you look at spending, it remained flatlines at 1% again. OK? 
Okay? So its proportion in terms of people is 2% and spending is 1%. This is OECD numbers. So these sort of four interlock trends that, uh, that, the, that the work on splintering urbanism sort of deciphers um, as, as what has informed and structured much of urban investment, infrastructure investment in the world um, uh, over the last 20, 30 years is absolutely in evidence across the continent, right? So all the growth that we're seeing, the investment that is happening, you're getting incredibly uneven geographies that is being reproduced. And I don't have time to go into examples and so on and, and, and images, but for now, I'll take my word for it. So, of course, then the question that one is left with is, if all of the investment is going to, in a way, fold itself around the needs and what, needs, what will be happening with, if you will, the middle classes in these cities, what investment can we imagine for, for the growth of slums in these areas? Right. So, one of the questions I think we're left with is the following. Will this infrastructure investment opportunity, driven by middle class consumption, lead us to greater urban sustainability and inclusion, as some of the habitat discourse would suggest, or worsen current trends? And I would in a very crude way, typify current trends as slum neglect combined with splintering urbanism in terms of urban form. Okay. And of course, is Africa irrelevant in this process in any case? We're like a total afterthought. Okay. And other work that we've done in the center, which I won't go through, sort of comes to this conclusion as to why there's been such abject policy failure with regard to urban policy in Africa a combination of political elites who deny it's happening, combined with political authoritarianism, because of course opposition political parties tend to flourish in cities and in urban governments, and generally a lack of resources for urban interventions, and this is a much more pernicious problem, because if your economy is mainly informal, you don't have formal businesses, you don't have a tax base, how do you invest in infrastructure? Right? This is a, it's a real chicken and egg problem. Um, and of course, often fairly weak civil society institutions uh, which means limited accountability, which reduces the prospect of a more equitable distribution of public resources. No? So, let's shift register. So, two or three years ago, I have a mandate to set up a research center to try and understand this stuff and what's going on and build a different kind of knowledge project. So, what do you do? Right? That's, you know, sort of the dilemma we're confronted with. And what was clear from the outset, based on the kind of uh, issues that I spoke about at the opening, is that unless we can have a much deeper understanding of everyday urbanism, of, if you will, the fabric of urban life, everyday culture, our policy models will simply fail. And this is really the fundamental dilemma. So it's not to say, let's not think about how to intervene, let's not think about policy, but let's not think about these spaces as simply the sum total of neglect and the absence of development and so forth. So how can we get a much better understanding of what happens in spaces when there is no formal state project to deal with these spaces to help to improve people's lives, and yet growth is incessant, Life goes on, stuff happens. How do you think about that? And then how do you intervene if you can muster the, if you will, the, the, the political uh, interest to do so? 
So, so if you want to, um, uh, what, within, what, what I've been reflecting on is how is the African city written about, right? And there's sort of three genres. There's the policy fix stuff. So there's a whole industry of people that I'm a part of and move in and out of, you know, where we sort of think about, okay, this is a really nice, juicy policy problem. How do you intervene? Um, and, of course, it's you know, very legitimate and appropriate. And then, of course, there's a, there's a bunch of scholars who um, come from a sort of structural Marxist school of thought and, you know, sort of is very keen to demonstrate how, um, uh, you know, sort of the very nature of capital accumulation reproduces uneven geographies and uh, particular uh, uh, sort of power structures. And then there's this sort of other body of work that have been emerging in the last 20 years that I would, you know, and most of the people who write in the genre would probably shoot me for putting them in this particular, uh, that's why I didn't make it a box, I made it a circle, so at least it's not a box. Um, constructivist ethnography and social theory. Okay, so trying to really say how can we, in a way, have a grounded theory disposition and really engage with the emergent realities in these spaces and think more theoretically about what is going on as a way of making sense of it. The problem, of course, is that if you have to sort of look at the relative weight of these different literatures, I would suggest to you that, you know, if you look at the journals, if you look at the books and so on, is that this is probably, I mean, this is a, you know, it's a thumbs up, but this is probably the ballpark, okay? Um, that through money that goes through Habitat and UNDP and all of these people who need to generate rationalities for why and how to intervene, they employ scholars to do it. And these scholars obviously, you know, have to also occasionally publish, and so that's where a lot of the resources are. And then uh, there's a healthy group of long-standing uh, good urbanists who've been sort of working on the deconstructive project and so on. And that remains, I would dare to say, uh, sorry, Matthew and Jenny and others, pretty marginal in the bigger scheme of things, right? So this was what we've been grappling with, is how do you institutionalize research capacity in an African university on African cities um, and so, 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 you know, we do this, we do research, we do knowledge dissemination, we engage policy people, the real world, and we teach. So we then said, okay, we've got to simultaneously work at different scales, don't worry about the detail. So we work at our university, we work in Cape Town, where we're based, obviously, University of Cape Town, sorry. That's, uh, um, and, uh, and we work in South Africa, we work in Africa, and we work in the global south. And we have different kinds of projects. Some is research, some is about, uh, uh, if you will, bringing, creating a platform for different people. This is the different projects in the ACC. Um, and at the core of it is uh, this project, the City Lab Project, where we co-produce knowledge with people in the public sector, NGOs, social movements, and so on. Um, and this is premised on this kind of epistemological standpoint. Um, we, we, we take a conscious decision to be between the academy, the public sector, and civil society at large. We have to always see what is this balance, which of course is elusive, between research, experimentation, and postgraduate development, and see how do you weave together in a fairly reflexive way theory, policy, and practice as how you do, how you be in uh, this particular uh, context of, of higher education research. And try and see whether this idea of labs is a way of using practical cases to help build multidisciplinary orientations and dispositions. Okay? Um, 
And then what was particularly obvious to us was one of the biggest problems and one of the biggest drawbacks for any scholar in South Africa is the curse of South African exceptionalism. Okay, so we've got a very big body of work and we sort of this because of the, you know, the sort of specificity of, the, of apartheid in, the Africa, in South African sort of urban form and racialization of, 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 of inequality and so on, we obviously see all cities like that, okay? Well, maybe all cities are like that, but... Um, and it was really important to figure out how do we destabilize that particular orientation and training to if we are going to work with colleagues on the continent. Um, so the labs, as I said to you earlier, um, for interest, this is, I love these pictures by a collaborator of Matthews here, um, about a, a photographic studio in one of the largest slums in Cape Town, um, where the photographer made that mural at the back as a backdrop for, for, for people's wedding photographs and their communion photographs and so on. Um, and the labs, uh, they, they're trying, as I said, to bring together these different knowledges, right? So this is sort of our, one of our biggest experiments. And I can promise you it's going like in five million different directions. So we have no idea what this means methodologically. We have no idea whether this is a sensible way of doing things. But what we do know is that it is completely different to anything we could have imagined if we would have designed research proposals in the conventional way. And I think that's probably a good thing. But I can come back to that in discussion time. So to conclude this section, so we sort of work on two axes as a way of keeping a methodological discussion alive. And this is back to the point about how do you research and think about African cities in this context, right? So the one axis is between a kind of broad church critical position, let's call it critical political ecology, a combination of post-colonial epistemology and building on critical political economy and so on. But since Cape Town has got one of it's one of seven very sensitive bioregions in the world, you can't think about anything about intervention and not think about the environment in, a, in an absolutely constitutive way. And of course, the idea that we want to engage with practice. We want to think about solutions. We want to think about engagement. And we, of course, have to work with both qualitative and quantitative. So we sort of, if you, if you will, as a kind of exercise in, in, uh, in methodological madness, plot our projects on this two axis, right? as a way of opening up a discussion about what are the tensions that we need to think about as part of our methodological stance. Um, and our idea is that you need the deep ethnographic work, and it goes back to the green circle I spoke earlier, careful, specific, contextual work, layered, textured, to inform and, if you will, renovate your theoretical project that your theoretical project can help you to prioritize what are the quantitative questions you want to understand, what are the trends you want to engage with. And that, of course, is important to be able to make some kind of input into, if you will, evidence-based policy. Let's call it that, for lack of a better term. But we also think that the careful ethnographic work is important to destabilize technocratic assumptions. So what we know is that in the developmental project, if you will, is that the idea that the carefully crafted project can solve problems is endemic. Okay? So this is not to say you don't do it, but of course it is about how do you induce a kind of reflexivity. So, to conclude then with the last part of um, my, my, my reflections. Matthew, where are you? Below the line. Okay, below the line. Um, so this is a uh, 
the people that is involved in this project with Abdul Malik Saman and Masa. And what this project is trying to do is to, we've got a, a little bit of money, we managed to construct a little sandbox, and we've got a couple of people who um, like to build uh, sandcastles with us. And, um, and we really have no idea what we're doing, pretty much. So um, what we, we know what we're trying to do. We're trying to see, is it possible to build an endogenous body of theory on the specificity of these emergent conditions in African cities? Right? What we know is that, if you will, the inherited canon from Western urbanism is not serving us terribly well that the kind of knowledge project that I showed you earlier in terms of those three genres of work isn't quite helping us also to frame this, that in a way we're pretty trapped with the sort of, uh, sort of global discourse and circulations on how to think about this work. And, um, and in a way between, uh, for those of you who are familiar with Malik's work, you have a very particular genre of, of if you will, um, trying to capture the social. And, and my work is obviously very different, and that in itself sets up a kind of attention. And then to sort of really get a little bit crazy, we thought, okay, maybe we should get people into the conversation that is never part of the conversation, but is actually doing really interesting, provocative work. Um, and this is artists. So we invited both visual and performative artists who work on the phenomenology of African cities to come and talk to urban scholars and urban theorists about their work. And our proposition was, if we contrive this ridiculous conversation, um, we can hopefully uh, spark some new concepts, some new notions, some new avenues that could help us open up a way of theorizing something that we don't quite know how to capture. Okay, that was the proposition. <laughs> yeah. Um, that hasn't worked, <laughs> okay? Um, but it it's it's hasn't worked in, in, a, in a really important way, okay? So it's sort of one of those things that one can be cliched about. It's like, you know, you've got to fail to learn. Oh, well, I don't know what the cliche is, but you get the idea. Like, it's an important mistake to make. And, um, and of course, um, we, so this just sets out, you know, sort of the, 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 the sort of practical milestones. And, um, I want to conclude by, in a way, sort of reading to you uh, what I've written in part for our conversation, but also what will be in, a, in part of this special issue of the journal that will come out quite soon, um, as a way of giving you a flavor of, of the kind of parameters we're trying to stake out to come to terms with urbanism, given the context that I've described to you. Okay? So we're trying to do two things. One is we're trying to take serious a different notion of the social. To use uh, effect theory, effective theory from William Connolly, Ryan Masumi, uh, Nigel Thrift, uh, these people, to really open up how to rethink the social in everyday life, okay? Through a sensorial set of dimensions. And of course, this is why artists are really helpful, because artists reminds us that the world isn't just a place about cognitive reality, but it is a mismatch of coming together a if you will, frisson of a whole range of different rationalities and practices and sensorial, corporal experiences. And so we're trying to push that one aspect. But at the same time, because of this dramatic transformation that is happening in these places, we don't want to give up on the materiality of space. Okay? So there's a whole bunch of really, really dramatic spatial transformations going on 
mediated in a way that doesn't confirm to the idea of informality or to the idea of the mega development project. But it is something else entirely, which we don't have an adequate, if you will, economic or political economy language to capture and describe and so forth. And what I have in mind here is the kind of intersections that you have between China and Africa. The idea that in Guangzhou there is a 11-story building that is painted pink that where there's only African traders. Okay? And these African traders, it serves as a warehouse, it serves as a hotel, it serves as a brothel, it serves as a whole bunch of things, but it also serves as a nerve center for a whole set of networks back into various African cities. Right? What does this mean? Uh, you know, what, uh, what are the kind of connections and the kind of identifications and the kind of imaginaries that it makes possible in the various cities that they come from, right? I mean, how do you think about that stuff? But there's a materiality to that which isn't reflected, which isn't in our discourses. So before I conclude by reading uh, just two pages from this piece and concluding and stopping, I just want to sort of uh, indicate that um, for the next phase of the work, we want to try and make an even bigger mistake, okay? So we're trying to persuade um, um, some foolish people who've got money and they don't know what to do with it to give it to us so we can run an experiment where we ask teams of people in six or seven African cities, artists, curators, project managers, urbanists, to conceive of an intervention in their city that works with the ideas that I will read to you in a second and, if you will, launches a kind of intervention into those cities around the theme of publicness. What does publicness mean in African cities as a way of continuing this conversation and folding back a critique in terms of what will come out of the first phase of this work? Okay? And to then use that as a mechanism to help us then rethink and recast based on what we've learned in this first phase and in this next process how to get a handle on this very elusive idea of the African city or African urbanism. So allow me to conclude. Building on some of the methodological considerations flagged in this paper, my aim really tonight was to construct and to suggest that interdisciplinary exchanges along the spectrum of, on the one hand, the aesthetic, and on the other hand, the functional, in the banal mundaneness of everyday practice in African cities is a valid way of thinking about it. With the aesthetic, I have in mind the ineluctable demands of beauty, desire, and transgression that bubble up from all of our subconscious to anchor and orient our engagements with the world. The city and its infinite myths, of course, always heavily inflected by popular cultures. By functionalism, I wish to signal pragmatic requirements of dwelling, mobility, sociality, and economy that require all urbanites to incessantly negotiate the imperatives of their livelihood and well-being. Given that our interior and exterior impulses are so tightly intertwined, I'm fairly certain that we cannot access a satisfactory, even if always partial account of cityness in Africa without mining the border zone where the subjective and the material collide. Practically, of course, We've tried to open this up through this experiment that I've just described to you. And we've done this, and we want to try and build this work out in future around five sets of issues or questions in order to flesh out what this aesthetic functional spectrum of sitiness may mean. And these five senses are senses of belonging, attachment, 
zones of contact, deal-making, and lines of movement. First, we're interested to know what are the senses of belonging that ordinary citizens feel, display, mobilize, invest in, and always ambiguate when the need arises. Does the city offer a distinctive context in which the dichotomies simply dissipate in the wake of what people do, often have to do, to keep as many senses of belonging as possible in play? Also, when the severity of urban violence or evictions or extortions get too overwhelming and people turn to new religion, religious formations, sorry, to new religion, uh, religious formations that offer a host of access points to various kinds of support and intelligence, do these new sites of belonging and community replace former ones? Or do they simply add to an expansive set of identities and belonging? How does the work of belonging and social association impact on the spatiality of the city? What roles do new places of congregation, association, leisure, and ambling play as gravitational points in subtle and highly malleable geographies of affiliation and distinction? Second, what are the attachments that city dwellers display? Which attachments matter more than others? Are attachments to consumables more or less important than social ones? Do commodity obsessions and social attachments implicate particular places over others? Can each be disentangled in such ways? How do conflicts over particularly consumer and gendered attachments shape the intergenerational and interclass conflicts in the city? How are attachments embodied, especially amongst the youth who invest greatly to demonstrate their mastery of particular styles and fashions in order to advance their range of opportunities for inclusion, mobility, access, and of course, <coughs> belonging? And again, what kinds of spatial geographies are discernible when we trace and expose the shifting waters of desire and aspiration as reflected in the work of attachment? Third, how can we define, uncover, and understand the multiple zones of contact across which a variety of social and, uh, a variety of social and identity boundaries? And of course, there's the very rich work of, of Malik that demonstrates how even in the most divided and internecine context, groups who are supposed to be enemies and implacably engaged in violent conflict can still be counted on to find zones of interaction and cooperation in, African, in, end, in the endless search for opportunity and intelligence. In other words, in most African cities, there are counterintuitive processes underway to redeploy the seeming insularity of groups in order to achieve certain kinds of mobilization. Given the intimate connection between levels of poverty, inequality, and economic exclusion, and the hardening of social group identities and conflicts, is it not essential to begin to understand these counterintuitive processes much better? Is this not one of the key specificities of the African urban condition that can aid our search for a more grounded and fleshed out account of African cityness? Fourth, and closely related to the previous vector of daily practice, is the question of deal-making. There is now, of course, a considerable body of scholarship that provides insight into the elaborate and intricate processes whereby agreements are forged to cooperate in order to achieve some modest access to cash, information, favors, goods, and, and the possibility of a reciprocal term in the future. I like to think of this as a kind of future trading of sorts. At the same time, this body of work also reveals a constitutive fragility to these processes because there are so many players and events and forces that could ruin the deal even before it is completely hatched. Yet, despite the modest returns on deal-making and the incredible effort expended 
to simply be in the right place at the right time so as to even be in the equation, the practice of deal-making is clearly endemic. Furthermore, there is a mimetic quality to it because the generalized perception of the broader public sphere is that the state, and especially state interventions, is quintessentially about the art and violence of deal-making. This intimates a very different approach to the political and the available avenues for rethinking it. Lastly, and more in the symbolic domain, we could be asking what the various lines of movement and transaction are that ordinary people use to read, navigate, and represent the city. It is obviously impossible to find a single or homogenous conception of the experiences and representations of space, but it would be interesting to remap the geography of connectivities across the city from the perspective of those who make these journeys all the time. These pathways and maps would link back to vectors dealing with senses of belonging, exercising attachment, and knowing where to be or not to be. I would argue that a completely different geography of movement, open spaces, closed spaces, black holes, open thresholds, and the like, can emerge if we take the care to surface and represent navigational registers that underpin daily routines and imaginary obsessions with more ambitious migrations to foreign lands and opportunities. These five vectors of the everyday are, of course, not exhaustive in any way or adequately comprehensive, but I'd like to argue and suggest to you that it can register a start to a qualitatively different research engagement with the material and sensory dimensions and folds of everyday urbanism. half an hour and uh, I'd open the conversation here in a moment but really I want to um, sort of expand a little or ask you a question which is ultimately related uh, how we were initially also connected which is rather technocratic work within the context of the United Nations Environment Programme um, and just listening to what you offered and uh, you gave us a great deal of insight into the thinking about setting up a center, a center that focuses on cities, not unlike the one we are trying to establish at the LSE. Um, I was just wondering how do you deal navigating these different fears of urbanisms you have been introducing, and in particular, well, that's sort of on an individual level that might be feasible, how do you deal with your colleagues, uh, people within different professions within your institution, but also beyond those you communicate with, in finding this common language that ultimately allows them to interact. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, all I can recommend is, is uh, healthy schizophrenia. Um, no, seriously, um, practically, um, I think uh, what I distinguish between is very much um, a kind of, uh, I suppose that it's just a very set of practical considerations, right? That and part of why I structured the talk in the way that I did was that even though the work that I'm personally interested in and engaged in and where my own research is concentrated is very theoretical and abstract, um, I have no illusions that unless it is driven and informed by an urgent engagement with a very deep set of crises in these cities, you know, it's really uh, a luxury that one can't justify. 
So within the overall sort of ecology of the center, my work is probably like 5%. Okay? And there's actually very few people in the core team in the center and so on that is directly engaged in the project. So my network, if you will, is with people all over the world who are interested in these questions, interested in an open, in a generative process that doesn't have very clear parameters and outcomes and so on and is really uh, ecumenical, uh, you know, sort of intellectually. Um, and, and, and is generous enough to be part of it, even though it doesn't offer sort of any kind of theoretical uncertainties. And I need that in a way to drive my own research and to be able to make sense of the policy stuff. Um, but the bulk of what we do is really driven by practice considerations from practitioners. So the center and the research in the labs in particular is constructed in a way that it's driven by the research needs of practitioners. And then what we do is we try and back that up with a kind of methodological rigor, where so even if the question is how do you prevent flooding in informal settlements when it rains too much, once one of our labs is on flooding in the city, um, we try and really push for thinking very carefully through the methodological considerations and what the theoretical frame is for a question like that, so that it can feed this broader intellectual project. But the people in the lab need to know that they need they will have the chief engineer from the city who knows the history of every single pipe, every drain, every kind of stone that gets used for paving and so forth, how porous it is or not, and so on, in their lab. In other words, they will be technically highly proficient. And if you waste their time with sort of waffle about a kind of, I suppose, a, a post-colonial deconstruction of sanitation, uh, you won't come back, right? So, 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 so the issue is, is how do we, when we feed this back into the academy and into our research and into our, our work, is use the imperative of practice, in many senses, but the imperative of practice to also feed a different kind of theorization. So we do insist that in the center, in our core stuff with academics and so on, we do have those conversations as well, but it's not what drives the research. So that's one. Okay, so as I said before, I want to take uh, questions in groups up to three. If you briefly introduce yourself and, and really brief question, so we can have many. One, two, where's the third? Okay, let's just kick off with the two, please. Tara. I think it's quite interesting. Just say who you are. Oh, my name is Jared. I'm a PhD student in uh, in geography department, what we're planning. Uh, I think one of the key questions that you raised very, I think, fundamentally in the sense that to improve the lives of the people, that the most important thing that's lacking is is the knowledge. Uh, you know that we simply don't know what is to be known to improve that. And that's the key thing. And the, the research center you proposed to, you know, the, the pathways you showed us. And one of the things that the first part of the slides you showed shows us this kind of you know discourse, the way they want the city to be ordered, what is to what they want to make out of geographies and lives of people. Now in practice today that is the dominating you know discourse in the sense of imagination of the practitioner. How do you actually imagine to you know bridge these two in, in actually operational Level, because that works in political, you know, that, that works in pragmatics in daily life, actually. Okay, very good.
So let's take those two. Okay. Um, I guess so let me start with uh, uh, reverse the order. Because um, I remember that. Uh, um, couple of things. So, um, work with uh, sort of larger public authorities who's thinking about, you know, sort of how do you build the economic platform of these cities. Um, so, the one side of that work is we're trying to, if you will, sort of rip out this emerging discourse on green cities and recast that in a way that deals with the problem of structural unemployment in particularly the South African case but it's a more pervasive problem. So in South Africa, which is a middle-income country, GDP per capita, eight, nine thousand US dollars now, you know, so it's a, um, you have 40% of the labor force unemployed. It's crazy, right? So there's just no way you can imagine um, a, 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 any kind of, of development or equity project with that level of unemployment. And given the fact that the economy is in a way completed its sort of way it's now inserted into globalized value chains, services totally dominate already, agriculture is three percent of GDP, about seven, eight percent of employment, and so on. You know, so if you will the services dominated economies what strive and where future growth will be and so forth. But because of the legacy educational system and a whole bunch of things, we just won't make a dent into the unemployment problem. So you've got to rethink the issue fundamentally. Got to think about um, uh, social economy. How do you, in a country where you've got such a high HIV incidence rate, is how do you, uh, all the people involved in home-based care, is how do you recognize that, validate it, and create a completely different set of social economies that may not have competitive wages with you know, a nurse in, 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 a, in a private hospital, but can be the beginning of a process to migrate into a formal uh, health economy job. Um, and I can go through a number of different sectors where that model is. So it is something different to public works um, because it is really about thinking systemically about recognizing a different set of categories of work that's about social care in a context where you've got massive development needs. The other components, of course, is to, uh, because of the nature of the economy and demand from formal business and so on, infrastructure investments have been heavily capital driven and it makes no sense. So you've got to go back, if we are going to take the green economy argument and look at decentralized systems, both on the energy side, water, and a whole bunch of other things, there's an enormous set of possibilities to create community-based economic support for those infrastructures. And if we can rethink those capital investments in a fairly fundamental way and use the notion opportunistically of green jobs, um, which of course is, a, is, is you know, there's some hubris involved there, um, I think there's a lot of potential to, to, to really sort of engage with the possibility of new kinds of economic activity and so on. And then the third area, of course, is where a lot of scholarship has been, which is the, what we now call the informal economy. Now, there's a whole range of very complicated issues there. One is the imaginary is still that some of people are going to migrate into a formal job. So policy, you know, that's the starting point. Is how do you get somebody to register their informal business so that they can pay tax and they can, you know, grow the business, right? And, um, and what we know from work particularly that we've learned from India is that actually these large volumes of informal businesses are already inserted into global value chains, right? They, they're really part of it. They are the micro-producers for intermediaries that sell goods in the stores in London. 
And so the issue is not formalization in the way we've always thought about informal economies, but is really understanding how these home-based production systems, what are those ecologies, and how we can better support it, not with the aim of necessarily formalizing, but understanding that these are new configurations of work. Now, of course, these are all about the imperatives of getting a lot more people, and young people in particular, into some kind of economic life. There is then the added and separate question of protection, okay, and standards and all of that. In my view, that is the main focus of the debate in a lot of African cities, and it is problematic because people don't even have work, so you know, let's not talk about protection. And in fact, what it does is it creates dual labor markets at the bottom end, which are deeply problematic. So, 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 so there's some work. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of the local economic development, regional economic development stuff is heavily, heavily reliant still on the kind of mainstream economic geography stuff we know. And so we have very few economists and regional geographers that are really grappling with these questions. So that's a, a big gap. Um, and so there's something we're pushing. And at the moment, we can't even get the economists at our own economics department at my university who are steeped in a kind of um, sector-driven analysis, uh, you know, sort of to, 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 to take space seriously at all. And not even the fact that Krugman won the Nobel Prize uh, washes with them, okay? So they pretty much sort of, and, and that's a generalized problem. Um, the, yeah, so, but just to answer your point in the beginning of it more directly, I do think that both lenses are important. The reason I was putting that up was to just make the point that we've got a set of very pernicious trends unfolding that even with all of this added capital investment and growth in these economies, what we will see with that investment is to exacerbate these trends. And that was just sort of the point that was trying to make. Um, and so we've got to think really from first principles about what is the future of the urban and how to be thinking. On the question of, um, of uh, um, you know, the sort of how practitioners think about this, and, whether, and I'm not sure I completely understood all aspects of your question, but um, our basic starting point is that in the academy, and a lot of the, the sort of people who work on urban themes in the academy, um, come from a very critical perspective. So they're sort of inherently dismissive of the state, inherently dismissive of people in the public sector, and they think they're all sort of duped by neoliberalism. Okay? So, um, so what we are trying to do is to, in a way, create a kind of, of knowledge engagement to shift, and I'm talking about it in very social engineering terms, and, I, and I'll explain why now, but to shift at an attitudinal level the disposition of scholars. Uh, it is shocking. I mean, when I went into the university, um, the assumptions that leading urbanists were making about the nature of the state and policy and how things happen, I found it shocking, right? People are totally, totally disconnected from the vicissitudes of institutionality, right? And so I think that there's a very important process of de-learning and relearning, which can only happen when they are, in a way, in the shoes of these practitioners. Not to solve the problems of practitioners, because I'm not interested in that. I think the practitioners, in, their, in the way they rethink their practice through the engagement with scholars and students and, and, and citizens, will figure it out. I don't think an academic can solve a complex policy problem, right? We're hopeless at that. But I think that the engagement can help practitioners to rethink the frame of the problem and to think what went wrong and what worked in their own practice and systematize that into a different approach. 
And that's what the academics need to then capture and codify and, of course, theorize of as a way of building new theory about practice. So I don't know if I understood your question, but that's sort of the response to provide. Let's move on. Are there more questions on this side? No? So, uh, there we go. One. Someone else? I want to take two and three. One, please. just add to that and in a way it fits the last two questions which is uh, your center is called the Center for African Cities. Um, no, you African Center for Cities. African Center for Cities. We have seen statistics where, which use this big bracket Africa in parallel to the big bracket China, India and Brazil. This session tonight is called African Urbanism. Um, are these big brackets helpful at all? And, uh, and if so, what is similar between Cairo, Johannesburg, and Lagos? But please follow them. Okay. Yeah. Right. So we'll leave the nasty ones for last. But that's uh, very generous of you. Um, okay. So I'll, I'll take the fun question first. Thank you, Vincent, for that. It's, um, look. Uh, at one point, one level, it's creative in me, right? So it's like I feel the same way about architects and people who can draw and make pretty pictures, right? could just do like they do. Um, so that's, in a way, the initial curiosity. I'm very interested in, um, in, in, in insights and capacities for representation in, in disciplines that is completely outside of my frame of reference. So, um, so there's just, you know, very deep curiosity. Uh, the second thing is that um, 
when I uh, encountered work of a number of people, and I'll give you a few examples. So one of the artists was involved. She's working with four choreographers in four different cities who's doing explicit new dance work on the city. Uh, it's between Casablanca, Durban, um, uh, I've got the other two cities now. It's actually fine. Anyway, so she's working with them in a, in, a, in a circular fashion. So she spends time with them, tries to sort of you know, engage them on the artistic vision, practice, and what it means. And she's doing a form that will knit all of these things together. But they don't know each other, so she found them independently. And, um, and basically through that is able to bring forward a completely different set of registers about talking about urban dynamics and urban life in very different places. Uh, another artist, uh, Emeka Topo um, from Lagos, is, um, has installed um, in different key transport interchanges in the city recording devices linked to um, a GIS map. And so you can go online and you can listen to the city uh, uh, through this particular uh, sound uh, sort of uh, installation, which is then uh, folded out into uh, a, a photography project and a whole bunch of other things. Um, other artists is more conventional in the sense of uh, there's a couple of photographers that specifically works on the phenomenology of the city. Um, and yeah, so, so it really spans quite widely. Um, uh, uh, another artist worked on, um, he did, he's, a, he's, a, um, um, he's written a different um, physical theater plays and he's produced a series of work on the theme of slavery in South African cities and is doing work at the moment on um, that is a kind of break with that to look at what is the now, what he calls the now, right? What is what happens in the in the moment. But it's all connected, you know. So he's been reflecting on what kind of what are the assumptions about the city and city formation that has informed his work in a way that was never an intention when he made the work, when he produced the art. So so all of this just gives people like me who read books and read the cells and read whatever, you know, a completely different set of reference point to think about space and think about urbanity. So, so that was the reason, was to, to completely shake up and destabilize assumptions. Um, the second question about autonomy. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, at one level, I should do the academic safe thing and say, I can't say because I don't have evidence. So, um, uh, but by the end, I'll give an answer. Um, the, it's very complicated. Most places, I find, and because I work between, um, you know, I've, I've only been in the academy. I mean, I've been teaching and writing for a long time. But I've only I've had a job as an academic for the last three years. So, um, so my, my experience is based on having you know, sort of been in practice for a long time. And, um, and I can tell you most places, if they take care to look, have a lot of autonomy actually. Even if there's no money, no resources, no building, no computer, and so on, people actually have quite a lot of autonomy. The problem is, is what are the frames that people bring to thinking about the space that they govern, or that they manage, or whatever. And if those frames are heavily indebted to methodologies and frameworks that stem from cities' alliance with the World Bank, with the OECD, and so on, 
then they will follow a particular set of rationalities that will lead them to conclude that the room for maneuver is this small. Okay? And so one of the NGOs I worked for, we did only one thing. We worked with people, we, we did strategy, and we worked with people in the public sector who managed large programs in urban areas, and we worked with civil society networks. And the only thing we did was to take an intent and translate it into a bespoke methodology to translate the intent into a series of interventions that responded to what they were trying to achieve in relation to the institutional capacity and, if you will, DNA. So we never replicated a frame once. So we designed institutional frames and methodological approaches to intervene every time de novo with people. And that, in a way, addresses, you know, sort of, it's my response to your question. So yes, the norm is that there's a heavy reliance on consultants that monitor and the like, uh, and McKinsey in particular, have seen cities as a growth market because they all want city development strategies. And so they help them figure out how to become a world-class or globally competitive or, you know, city. And they follow very particular procedures and methodologies, um, which creates a kind of strategic positioning. But with a whole bunch of assumptions about what the options are, right? And what constitutes development in formal economic development. And because most leaders and managers of cities think that that is global best practice, that is the symbol of being a modern, far-sighted, whatever, government, they unfortunately rely on that stuff. And so part of what we're trying to do is not to say strategy is not important, thinking systematically about how to intervene in the context of extreme need, limited resources, really complicated state institutions, but to say, you know, how can you assume that you can make it, that you can intervene, but really think through what is available endogenously and what resonates with a particular place in terms of its history and its unique uh, ecology of, of groups, interests, identities, and so on. So, yeah. Um, <laughs> common language, yeah, this is one question, so um, I'll, I'll deal with it as one. Um, I, 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 my bag is over there. So, one of the other projects that I do, and that was not about trying to run out of the room, <laughs> by the way, I wanted to pull out the, 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 the publication that we did. Um, we do something called the African Cities Reader, and I'm going to start there because in the African Cities Reader, we're trying to, so it's part of my work on urbanism, um, and it's available online and it's free and all of that. But what we do with this publication is that we assume that Africa is not a geographical construct. Okay? So we assume it's deterritorialized. Uh, you can download it off the web. Um, and, um, and so Africa is everywhere. And Africa is really um, sort of recognizing, so there's a fantastic essay in here on the symbology of funerals in the Caribbean. Okay, it's a really brilliant piece. Um, and, um, and there's a wonderful piece on, on the, the shadows of Africans in Rome. Okay. Um, uh, um, by a fantastic Nigerian writer, uh, and um, and so my answer to your question is is a kind of good old feminist answer, strategic essentialism. <laughs> and what I'm trying to say with this is that in the larger economy of representation, Africa remains 
a deeply problematic category. It, at the one hand, recognizes or re represents extreme marginalization within the globalization project, and as the numbers that I've showed you. And so there is clearly a very, very important political project of resignifying that intense marginalization that is embedded within a broader racialized discourse um, about the black body that remains important. And that that project, I think, is most virile, most fertile, most full of potential within the emergence of new urban identities. Um, and what is interesting, if you look at how Africa circulates at the moment, it circulates as the future of the world's food crisis, right? So the, if you read the, um, uh, it was, was it The Economist or one of these big magazines, right? So basically, with the resource constraints, with the food crisis, with reaching uh, uh, National Geographic has got seven billion people on the cover in the last issue, you know, Africa is the world's food basket, right? So how is that for a kind of representation of uh, this perpetual idea of Africa being the repository of what is traditional, what is agricultural, what etc., etc., etc. And this fits Africa's political elites fantastically. Okay, so at the heart of challenging and questioning the global power relations that reproduces Africa and other parts of the global south, intense peripheralization is this really important political project of resignification. So that's the one part of it. The other part, of course, is that I think that if you look at the particularity, the specificity of urban development since, let's say, 1970 to 2010, with the global economy changing dramatically after the, the, um, the, the oil crisis of 71, uh, the disaster on the, the gold standard in, in, in 71, uh, the financial crisis in Mexico in 81, and we look at Africa's sort of particular insertion into these processes and so forth. There's something that happens because around 73, urbanization, the transition starts. And if you track the transition between 73 and now, and the, how the rules of the game through globalization, WTO and so on, gets rewritten, of course, I mean, the, the really incredible thing, with the last uh, agreement uh, around GATT in 1994, there was a public report that all the governments signed, including our governments, African governments, that acknowledged that the only region in the world that will lose out because of the GATT agreement was Africa. It was going to lose 5% of our world GDP. Right? If this gets included, I mean, it's like, that's astounding, the kind of normalization of the intense exploitation and peripheralization of Africa. So, so, so that's one part of the answer. And, but what that means is that sort of urban economic development has unfolded in a way that creates a set of conditions in African cities which I think are specific, where you've had urbanization disconnected from growth and building an industrial platform that is broad enough to absorb an urbanizing working class. And you don't find that in Asia, you don't find that in Latin America to the same extent, and so there's a specificity there which I think warrants us to continue to use it. Of course, uh, you know, fortunately, uh, we don't have to use inverted commas anymore for all the kind of um, uh, uh, um, 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 qualifications we make around certain concepts that we continue to deploy, even though we don't sort of believe in them as a kind of fixed idea. And, and to then conclude, um, 
within that framework, it is still then possible to absolutely recognize and confirm the extreme diversity across African ethnicities. Um, and it is absolutely essential. And clearly, Cairo has got a Mediterranean urbanism, which connects it to Barcelona, connects it to Greece, Athens, and so forth, Casablanca, and so on, in very, very powerful ways. But it is creating and facilitating other kinds of cultural connections with Cape Town because of the history of East Africa and the Middle East in slavery and so forth. So, so it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's important, I think, to both try and read and look for the connections between places, to recognize the material similarities of underpin African cities, but also to obviously be completely sober about the unique uh, specificities and therefore the differences. Thank you, Edgar. Well, with this uh, very appropriate ending, a reflection on Africa and African urbanism, I think uh, we want to bring this uh, to a close. Um, now, I very much hope that this is just the beginning of an engagement with Edgar, with his institution. Uh, I think for us there's a lot to learn from the methodologies which you're exploring and discussing, and we're, of course, keeping a close eye on seeing how successful that is, <laughs> uh, working with the artists on the one hand and with uh, all the big uh, global players uh, on the other is clearly, I think, a big challenge, and uh, we, we will be in close contact on that, and hopefully we'll welcome you again uh, as a lecturer here at the LSE soon. Most importantly, thank you so much for this inspiring talk. Uh, I really believe you uh, sort of left us with a lot of thoughts uh, and um, I look forward to taking that discourse forward. Thank you. Thank you.